the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Joined by former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Chris Christie has written a fabulous book. If you're watching on the Salem News Channel, here it is. Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Governor Christie, welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Happy to be back, Hugh. Thanks for having me. Now, you and I worked out over the weekend that I got as much time as I needed because I actually read this book in detail, and we got a lot to talk about. I want to preface this by saying you're up against Adam Schiff's book. Are you worried? <laughs> I, I didn't lose a wink of sleep over that last night. Because, <laughs> Hugh, my book's nonfiction. His is fiction. Well, it's so funny. Poor Adam. He's gotten more media than anyone I've ever seen. His book's at 357 on Amazon. They're giving them away as doorstops. Nobody wants to read. <laughs> no. what, do you, what do you think that says, that Adam Schiff is so unself-aware that his book's at 357 after every Sunday show, Bill Maher and Free Press? You know, look, he, he has been that unself-aware every minute that I've known him. Uh, you know, I spent some time in green rooms with him here at ABC, and I will tell you, um, this is a guy who really does believe his own malarkey, as they might say, uh, Hugh. He is he is absolutely self-consumed. Do you expect more indictments from John Durham? I do. Do you expect that they I, will reach into the bureau? I think they could, uh, because I think that there's plenty of smoke there. And, and And this is something that I said all along about John Durham. I know John Durham from when I was U.S. attorney in New Jersey. And this is a serious guy who will take very deliberate steps to get to the truth. And I know for some people in politics that never goes quickly enough. But I think John Durham will do the job the right way. Now, uh, in Republican Rescue, and I got to say the title seven times on the radio and off, you talk about Christopher Ray. You defended Christopher Ray to the president. It's one of the memorable episodes in Republican Rescue. I don't know uh, Christopher Ray from Adam. All of my friends tell me he's a wonderful lawyer, and all of my friends tell me he's an ethical guy. And you stood up for him to the president uh, on on page 63, in fact. Uh, it's now in print. Do you think that if Christopher Ray thinks there's someone who needs to be turned over to Durham, that there's something, a smoking gun in the bureau files, that he'll turn it over to Durham? Yes, and, and it's not just because I know Chris Ray and respect him. It's because he's done it, Hugh. Um, you know, he cleaned out that entire leadership team at the FBI that served there under Jim Comey um, and he, all of them. He, he, he fired the top 10 people that were in Comey's leadership team when he became FBI director. So he has cleaned house there already. He set a new standard for the FBI. And I think if he sees that there are more people further down in the organization, 
who John Durham believes need to be spoken to or ultimately need to be charged. Chris Ray will not get in the way of that. He's a Justice Department veteran. He was an assistant U.S. attorney. He was a high. He, he ran the criminal division in the Bush 43 administration. This is somebody who is serious and is ethical and is smart. I'm glad you stood up to the president about it. We're going to come back to that. You believe in loyalty to friends, right? Because I have two beefs with you, and I want to get to the beefs while we're on the radio show. Because you're a loyalty guy, right? I am. Okay, I'm very loyal to Chuck Todd. Chuck is a friend. He has always been fair to me in green rooms and on sets. Now, I'm under contract to NBC. They're about to breach that contract rather intentionally. Not Chuck's fault. But you write about Chuck. He's a, quote, complete liberal advocate each and every Sunday, a reflexive booster of Democratic progressive causes and a relentless opponent to whichever conservative Republican happens to appear. He hasn't been that way to me, uh, Chris Christie. And I think like George Stephanopoulos, he simply reflects the Beltway mindset. Why did you choose Chuck of everyone to run over? Because I just haven't seen it. I think he's as fair as all of them. I, listen, that's not the experience I've had with him, Hugh. And I'm talking about my direct experience with him. Um, and I chose to write about him because I've had that direct experience with him. And I think you should only write about people who you've had a direct experience with um, and not based upon other people's opinions. So that's my opinion. It's my opinion based upon my personal interaction with Chuck. And I understand that other people could have different experiences and different opinions, but the book's about my opinions and my experiences, and that's why I wrote it. Okay, and I've had, I've been on, I think, 40 times on Meet the Press, and I think he's just as fair as fair can be. He's also smarter than pretty much everybody in the Beltway and the media. But let me go to my second beef, because this is even bigger. On page 109, you write, COVID canceled the second debate. No, it didn't, Chris Christie. The Anti-Trump Commission on Presidential Debates canceled that second debate. It is a dinosaur. It is run by octogenarians. It must be destroyed. Presidential Debate Commission Delenda S., right? I'm going to be Cato the Elder on this. Why do you cover for them? That was not to cover for them. My point was that because of COVID, um, the rules were changed. And because President Trump had actually had it, Um, They were changing the rules for it. But I am not an advocate or a protector of the Presidential Commission on Debates. I don't think I say that I am in the book um, because I'm not. And so you and I actually agree on that. So it's much less of a bone to pick than you thought. Okay, we'll come back and we're going to go long with Chris Christie. I'm going to play more of this tomorrow. Boy, this book has got a lot of explosive stories in it. And as I've watched it over the weekend, of course, mainstream media, legacy media has missed most of them. I haven't missed any of them. So I'm coming back with Chris Christie. We'll play more of it tomorrow. Go listen to the whole thing on the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you, Dwayne and Adam. Thank you, Ben and Harley. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks to the entire team. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'll be back live tomorrow and on the interview with Hugh Hewitt later today. Back now with Governor Chris Christie. He began this interview yesterday on the show, and now the interview with Hugh Hewitt has it all, and I'll play more of it on the Tuesday show. Governor Christie, though, when you wrote that the COVID canceled the second debate, the Presidential Debate Commission did that. And I think we've just got to be very honest. They did it without consulting Donald Trump. They did it in a high-handed way, and they were all anti-Trump. I mean, they were all anti-Trump. Didn't the team, and you were part of the team, helping Donald Trump prepare no, they were going to screw you. No, Chris, I talked to Chris Wallace about it. Chris screwed him. Uh, Steve Scully's a friend of mine, but he was an anti-Trump person. It was just negative Trump from start to finish. Why do we indulge this group of gas bags? Well, look, I think that 
We were in a position at that time where we were behind in the race. We needed the debates to try to make up some ground on Joe Biden. And I think while there was discussion about not doing the debates inside the team for the very reasons that you're talking about, in the end, we made the strategic decision that we were going to bet on Donald Trump and his ability to overcome that. He had done it in 2016 and won two, the, the final two debates in that, in that sequence. Um, and we were betting on him. But none of us were for a moment um, clouded in the, in the realization, Hugh, that uh, the debate commission was anti-Trump and was going to do whatever they could to try to make things look bad for him. You know, Chris Christie, I know Brett O'Donnell. I, I know a lot of people involved with debates. I've moderated debates. I just did one in Ohio. Your book is the best on debate preparation I've ever read. And uh, it's, it's going to be a warning to every future president that incumbent. I actually hadn't put that together, what you write in Republican Rescue. Every incumbent president has lost their first debate, probably for the same reason. Would you explain that yep. to people? The reason is that they're the president and they think they don't have to prepare to debate someone who's not the president because they're the president. But if you look at every one of them, from Gerald Ford in 1976 to Ronald Reagan in 1984, George H.W. Bush in 1992, and you know it has just been over and over, George W. Bush in 2004 and Barack Obama in 2012, every one of them has lost the first debate because they don't prepare, they don't take it seriously. And I tried to impress that upon Donald Trump by handing him newspaper articles from that time, each one of those debates where people in the press are talking about how the president, the incumbent president at the time, lost the debates. And I was hoping to get through to him on it, but I didn't. This is history. People will have to read Republican Rescue whenever they write a biography of Donald Trump going forward, because this is actually what happened in the rooms where it happened. So, Governor Christie, the funniest line in Republican Rescue is when you ask the president of the United States, when was the last time you answered a question in under two minutes? The answer to that is he has never answered a question. I've interviewed him two dozen times. I've done debate. He he's incapable. It's not possible. And to get him to try and stop in an interview, you have to throw logs on, on the railroad track and wreck the train to get him to stop. Did he ever absorb that lesson? He didn't. Um, he did not. Although we tried hard, and by we I mean in the, in the context of the 2020 debate prep, myself and Kellyanne Conway and Bill Stepien, we tried hard to, to restrict him and to put some guardrails around it. Because I said to him in the end, if you don't practice doing that now, you're not going to be able to do it effectively and make the points you need to make in a two-minute format when the debates actually occur. Uh, but he, you know, he was resistant to it, and he would stop in the middle of answers and explain himself. And it was a very challenging thing, but it was challenging in 2016, too. Um, and I felt like I knew how to deal with them and how to make it more effective. Uh, and we definitely tried to do that in 2020, but to less success than we had in 2016. And well, I think I, I, a, a if large people, part of that was because he was president, you. Yeah, I, I, you, you lay out the case. Republican Rescue details this. I'm never going in the map room again, by the way, because uh, <laughs> it's, it's such a no. Go ahead, stay out of the map room, America. And Melania Trump's going to love your book, by the way. I've never met the first lady. Uh, I think you did a wonderful service to her in Republican Rescue. I'm now going to go to my outline, Governor Christie, because it's uh, it's 14 pages long. And I said I, I needed time with you. Number one. Have you and former President Trump discussed Republican rescue? Not the book in particular, but as I 
He knows I'm doing the book. We haven't spoken about the book um, uh, in its final form. But as I say very early on in the book, there's nothing in there that I write that I haven't said directly to the president, either face to face or over the phone. The next time you sit down with him, can I come? <laughs> ah, <laughs> I might want you there, too. Well, I, I just party involved. I know I could be a witness forever, whatever happens in there. But is there OK, more importantly, seriously, is there any evidence anywhere that President Trump actually won either Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin or Arizona, Governor Chris Christie? No, I agree. Do you believe that he thinks that there is such evidence or is it just simply that he finds it useful to pretend to believe that there is such evidence? Both. I think oh, in some instances, in some states like Pennsylvania, I think he really believes there's evidence in other places. Um, I think uh, uh, like Georgia, for instance, I think it's just convenient. You know, Governor, I, I really think he has to believe it to do what he's done. I mean, it's just too cynical. People can believe myths. They can believe untruths and act upon that. But I find it very hard to believe he doesn't believe that he won those four states. You know, Hugh, I, obviously I can't get inside his head and I don't know, but he's a very smart guy. Um, and anybody who thinks he isn't is wrong. You're he's right. a very smart man. You're right. Uh, a big wheel in D.C. told me over the weekend that President Trump would run again if he can get out of bed. Do you agree? No, I don't agree that that's the standard. I think if he believes he can win a general election, then he, he is more likely to run than not. But I think that'll be the standard that he's judging it by because he does not want to be a two-time loser in a general election. Oh, interesting. I think that's true. Now, Governor, help me understand something. Uh, Leader McConnell is a friend of mine. Liz Cheney is a friend of mine. The president has picked ongoing fights with both of them, and Liz Cheney continues her fight with the president. That's never going to stop. Leader McConnell basically just tries to, he said his piece, he's done with it, he's trying to govern. Why should the president keep going after Mitch McConnell when there's nothing he can do to the leader and there's a lot that the leader can do to him? It doesn't make any sense at all. Well, that's, as you know, some of the premise, really the premise of the book is that if we continue to look backwards and we can continue to participate in grievance politics and vendetta politics, um, that that's destructive to the party's ability to be credible. We need to be a party that stands for the truth again. And I think that what Senator McConnell, what it also is, is ungrateful to you, because Senator McConnell carried a lot of water for Donald Trump when Donald Trump was president and got a lot of things done for Donald Trump and the country when Donald Trump was president. And so, you know, the fact is that it's not only doesn't make any sense for the future, it shows a lack of gratitude for what Mitch McConnell did to help make the Trump presidency successful in the places where it was successful. Um, but this is the destructive nature. And why I wrote the book is because we have to be the party of truth again. And we have to be while we're all talking about this, Hugh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are trying to lay waste to the country. That's what we should be focused on stopping, not, you know, counting how many you know, people we can, you know, execute a vendetta against. Yeah, th this interview is in two parts, looking backwards and looking forwards. I'm going to come to the policy stuff in the end. But two propositions about Leader McConnell. One, he's the most effective Republican legislative leader of my lifetime. And that includes some greats like Bob Dole. And two, Leader McConnell saved the Constitution by taking the heat and holding open the Scalia seat. Do you agree with one or both of those propositions? Both. All right. Both. Uh, 
if Donald Trump runs and doesn't get the nomination, which I think is a great possibility for a lot of reasons, would he go Teddy Roosevelt on us? You write about second second tries, Martin Van Buren. I didn't know that about Martin Van Buren, by the way. You write about stuff I didn't know about, but you don't talk about the bull moose party option. Would Donald J. <laughs> Trump do that? I don't think so, because it wouldn't lead to him winning. Um, he would then be called the two-time loser by history. And I think that's what he's trying to avoid at all costs. All right. Would you have voted for the infrastructure bill that just passed the Congress? You know, that's a tough one, Hugh. Um, there's things in there I like. There's things in there I despise. Um, so I think that's a really tough call. Um, I, I think in the end, I probably would have supported it, but it would have been a very tough call. I would have voted for it. I'm a Rob Portman Republican. Portman negotiated it. It's got enough good to outweigh the bad. Uh, I have told people that you're running, but you can't declare. I've said the same thing about Secretary Pompeo, Senator Cotton, both Senator Scotts, maybe Ambassador Haley. You can't declare until 2022, even if you're running. Am I right about that for legal reasons? Well, I don't know about for legal reasons, but I wouldn't want to do that because I'm interested if I run in winning. And, and I'm not interested in the experience. I've already had the experience. So you can't make a judgment about whether you have a real chance to win or lose at least until the end of 2022. Okay. Now, one thing I think the RNC ought to be doing, and I've argued this to Rana and to uh, um, everyone involved, is they ought to start getting the maybes. Maybe Chris Christie is running. Maybe uh, uh, Donald Trump is running. Maybe Mike Pompeo and Tom Cotton and the two Scots and everybody else, Mark. I mean, it's like we're going to need a three-tier stage. But they got to get you out now. We sold 1,500 tickets, sold tickets for an Ohio Republican primary debate with six candidates. Fifth, that's a demand signal. People are eager for substance, Chris Christie. Will the RNC start giving it to them? I hope so. And, and I hope they'll also focus on the issue we were talking about before, which is we need to be setting the rules for our own debates. I mean, we can't allow you know, networks and others who are you know, not necessarily aligned with our interests to be kind. Um, to be setting the rules for those debates and setting the format for those debates. And that should be being done now by the RNC um, so that we don't depend upon anyone, including a presidential commission, to do that going forward. I think David Bossie is working on that. My recommendation, of course, is just to let me do them all, every minute of them, <laughs> and to cut out Mary Catherine Hammond, throw Guy Benson from the bus, et cetera. But there are a lot of center-right and conservative people who could run these things fairly, right? We could get this done. Of course we can. And there are a lot of people, and, and some of the folks you just named um, could be suitable folks as well as you. Um, but what, what I would want as a candidate um, and what I wanted in 2016 is someone who does their homework and is thoughtful and won't let people get away with things. Um, and I think that's what we need because that's the test we're going to have to face as a candidate if you run all the way through um, until Election Day in 2024. Now, now, the interesting thing about the debates I've been doing now and the debates you were in in 2016, I've developed rules out of my experience, and there are three of them. One, no question can be longer than 30 seconds because it's not about the moderator. Two, no answer should be longer than 75 seconds because if you can't say it in 75 seconds, you haven't got a thought. But most importantly, no right of reply. I watched at six feet distant Donald Trump exploit the no right of reply rule. And you did a pretty good job on that, too. You know, Thank ding, you. ding. That's like the, the trap door for the debate moderator. Oh, it absolutely is. And look, what you do is you as someone who's competing, you take advantage of the rules 
um, that, that uh, what the rules allow you, and you take advantage of your own talent. And as a trial lawyer, the right of reply is always something that I like to take advantage of. Do you agree with me that Jeff Zucker won the presidency for Donald Trump by giving him endless airtime after the debates? Not only do I agree with you, but when I left the governorship um, and I went to CNN as one of the places I was considering joining as a commentator afterwards, Jeff Zucker said to me, you know, pointing to me, you're responsible for Donald Trump being president because of your early endorsement of him. And I said, doctor, heal thyself. I said, I, I sat in, in a hotel room in Iowa after doing three town hall meetings where I attracted about 900 people amongst the three. And I sat in my hotel room and watched you give Donald Trump an hour and a half of uninterrupted, non-commercial airtime to give a speech from Alabama. Don't you talk about anybody having done that other than you. Well, it's, uh, he should own it. It's Jeff's. He created it. And I like Jeff. I worked with Jeff. Uh, Jeff so is I. a friend of mine. But he elected Donald Trump. Uh, can we agree on that? I agree. All right. Let's go to COVID. Uh, you were telling the president to be more aggressive on COVID. You were right. I was talking about COVID in January of the year that it came out incessantly on this program, sounding the alarm. He finally acted on the travel ban at the end of January. But I think you may have prompted him, according to the account in Republican Rescue, to take over the daily briefings, which was a monumental mistake. This is the only thing that's going to matter for re-election, you write on page 37, telling him. Was it wrong for him to take over the daily briefings? Well, I think it was wrong for him to take over the daily briefings in the way that he did. Now, if he, my suggestion to him was go out there, you know, have four or five substantive points you want to make, make those points, take two questions and leave and turn it over to Pence. Um, but I thought it was important for, and I still believe it's important, in a crisis for the public to see their leader and to see that he's engaged, familiar with the facts, and, and acting every day. And I learned that during Sandy, and I think it, was an incre- it would have been an incredibly important tool. And my proof on that is that every governor, other than Gavin Newsom, had their ratings go up during COVID because people want a strong executive during COVID who they see and look, to, look in charge. They want it during any crisis. And, he, and Newsom was the only one who blew it because he didn't do it right um, other than Trump. And, you know, and, and Andrew Cuomo, obviously, for other unrelated reasons, wound up seeing his, his governorship go up in smoke. Um, but otherwise, who's in all those governors? Regardless of ideology, Hugh, all of their ratings went up. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. The, the problem is, if you can't answer a question in under two minutes, if you're given to vamping, if you're going to talk about disinfectant injection, that was unfair the way it was played up. But the more you talk, the more mistakes you pro- make. I mean, it's science. It's not something I would be comfortable talking about. You make a statement, you throw it to the scientists, right? Well, he should have gotten. Look, the advice was go out there, do it. Four or five concise points. Take two questions and hand it over to Pence and let him run the rest of it. Um, It wasn't to go and have a two-hour vamping session with a media who's trying to destroy you. And so, you know, I think the advice was sound. I think the execution was poor. And and by the way, I think COVID is the single biggest reason why he's still not president of the United States. No, I agree with that. Uh, And I think it's those briefings. Let me ask you, Governor, about the CDC, though. Uh, And I want to run through for the record. The CDC botched the development of the urgently necessary test. 
Dr. Fauci participated in the so-called noble lie. Masks don't work because he was afraid, as you point out, in Republican rescue of a run on masks. They vastly overestimated the time it would take to develop a vaccine. Then the CDC paused the J&J vaccine. The CDC did not rebuke then-candidate Biden and Harris when they undermined vaccines during the campaign. They screwed up the booster rollout. They never did research on the cost-benefit of masking kids in K-3, through uh, even though every European country has now abandoned that. They never finished the ivermectin study. They screwed up the booster rollout for Pfizer again this week. They were Wuhan lab theory deniers. They were gain-of-function misleaders. They canceled and then restored Christmas. Is there any way CDC gets their credibility back? Probably not in my or your lifetime. No. And, and look, you're judged not by what you do every day in government most of the time. You're judged by how you perform in a crisis. And the CDC was a non-performer in this crisis. And, there, and it doesn't matter regardless of administration, whether it was the Trump administration or the Biden administration, as you pointed out, in your very well-assembled list of, of, of bad acts by the CDC. And so, no, I don't think that the CDC will get their credibility back with a majority of the American public in, in my lifetime or yours. It probably is a, is a 15, 20-year proposition at least. Now, Governor, that is a crisis, and I want, I want you to think out of the box here a little bit. If, God forbid, we have a new public health emergency, uh, not a variant of, of COVID, but a new one, like Ebola or something else, how will anyone believe anything that comes out of the CDC? I mean, we've got to have Fauci retire. I like the guy. He's a wonderful American. He's got two medals of freedom. I know all that. But we've got to change everybody up. Otherwise, if we get caught right now, we're going to be the perfectly executed half charge, half retreat on the side of the hill getting slaughtered by a bug. Yeah, no, look, I, I think that there needs to when, when there is. How about this? As a leader, what you know is when there's fundamental failure. You have to make changes um, because otherwise people are not going to give people a third and fourth chance. And so I think the CDC process is going to have to be changed only by first changing personnel. All right. Now let's go to one of history's great counterfactuals. I did not know that you'd turn down the opportunity to be the chief of staff. And so I read Republican Rescue, and I almost broke my pencil the way Eisenhower did when Nixon delivered the checker speech. Because if I had known you well enough and you had asked me, I said, of course you have to do that job. The country needs you to do that job. God love Mick Mulvaney. People like him. He's a four-term congressman from South Carolina. He was a state legislator. He's a smart guy. He has no more idea how to be an executive officer. The OMB didn't run under him. It was a disaster for Mick Mulvaney to replace John Kelly. The president offers you the job. You talk to the great Jim Baker. That's fascinating, by the way. You called the one person to call. But Jim Baker didn't lay down conditions for Ronald Reagan. He simply said yes. Why didn't you say yes? Because I didn't think he would let me do what needed to be done to make both uh, the presidency successful and him successful. And in the end, Hugh, um, I'd say it's hubris. Um, to say that if you look at the objective indicia and you say the objective indicia don't allow you to be successful in the job of chief of staff, that you take it anyway. Um, and believe me, I came very close to taking it. But in the end, it was clear to me the president wanted to be his own chief of staff. And I think the best way to illustrate that is the story I told in finishing that chapter, which was that he leaked the story 
that I was going to take it himself. He yes, and he told Axios. He told Jonathan yeah. Swan. By the right. way, you did Jonathan himself. Swan, the greatest career. Everybody talks to Jonathan. I know that. He's the best reporter in D.C. But the idea that the president would leak his own story to Jonathan Swan is hilarious. And imagine, Hugh, if in fact you're the chief of staff trying to develop a press strategy for the president, trying to develop a Hill strategy for the president in the midst of a reelection campaign, and you have the president calling his own plays, which he has the right to do, but he's at least got to keep you in the huddle so you know what, what, what he's audibling. He, doesn't, he didn't do that and doesn't do that. And so as a result, I just didn't think I could be successful, and I wasn't going to go into a job where I knew that I would fail. That wasn't going to help the country. Oh, wait a minute. Were you best were you best prepared of anyone in the country to be Donald Trump's chief of staff? Yes. You should have taken the job, Governor. And and by the way, Melania Trump telling you what will you do about Ivanka and Jared? That is really great history. Uh, so is your answer. Nothing. People have to read Republican Rescue to get that. But if you can do the job and the president asks you, you know, Mick Mulvaney single handedly killed the Navy buildup that you call for on page 274. Mick doesn't know anything about defense, and he was in there screwing around with it. I'm aware. And look, there are consequences to every decision. But you're asking me my honest, uh, my, my honest opinion, Hugh, and you know that I always give you the honest. My yes, honest you view. do. I, I, you know, I just did not believe that the president would listen to me. And if you're not going to be listened to as chief of staff, not deferred to, but listened to, then there's no reason to be in the room. Well, you know, there are six jobs worth having. The chief of staff, the NSA, the secretary of state, defense, and the attorney general, the CIA, maybe the FBI, maybe DNI. Uh, those are the only ones that matter in the government, really matter in terms of history. And you turned down one. You. Yeah, I you did. turned down one. Ah. I did. I want to be, by the way, if you're president, will you commit to me right now to make me special envoy to Northern Ireland? That's where my people are from. Hugh, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be special envoy to Northern Ireland, if that's, if that's your life stream... I'm, I'm, I'm about making dreams come true. Think about it. It's a perfect job. My people are from St. Field. You can spend most of your time in London. There apparently is nothing going on in Northern Ireland except the Brexit border issue. And there's no Senate confirmation. And I, I just think it's the perfect job. Mick Mulvaney should have taken that job immediately. Not as the, <laughs> not as the. Okay. Look, page 133. You write about Donald Trump. If he, he didn't care about history. He had never read much of it. He certainly had little interest in learning from the hard-earned experience of those who had come before him. I agree with that. The president, to my knowledge, didn't read a book when he was in the White House and may not have read a book before coming to the White House that he didn't write. My question is, did that make him uniquely successful? In other words, he didn't know history, so he wasn't going to be constrained by it. He would move the embassy to Jerusalem. He would take out Soleimani, even though he didn't know who Soleimani was when I asked him about it in 2016. Not knowing history has some advantages, Chris Christie, doesn't it? Yes, but the disadvantages, in my view, outweigh the advantages. And, and I think that um, overall, it was an impediment to him doing even better than he did not a benefit in the overall balance. I do understand your argument, and I don't disagree that there is some validity to it, but I think in this instance, um, it, it hurt him more than it helped him. 
In this instance, though, he nominated Amy Coney Barrett when a normal president wouldn't have done it with less than a month to go. In this instance, he got three justices on there with Mitch McConnell's leadership and has saved the Constitution because he didn't know he couldn't do it. Would every other president have buckled on Brett Kavanaugh? I don't think so. And, and by the way, um, I don't think I put this in the book, but um, I was with him during the Kavanaugh hearings one day uh, where he said to me, tell me the truth. Would you get rid of this guy? And I said, absolutely not. I see he's the right guy for the That's job. not in the book. That's no. not in and, the book. That's interesting. No, I didn't put that in. But I, and, and, and I, I'm not trying to imply that he was ready to dump him, but there were certainly people who were in his ear to do it. Um, and he wanted to check it with somebody that he trusted and asked me, you know, what would you do? And I said, I'd keep him and I'd stand in for the fight. Um, because either way, if you stand in for the fight, you're going to win. Um, should W have uh, uh, did. should George W. Bush have pulled the plug on Harriet Myers? Yes, because I don't think she was qualified to be on the court. Once you make I the think, nomination, you can't blink, the governor. Well, you can't blink. I, no, I think the, I think the problem was that it was a ill-advised decision up front, Hugh, and I think that ill-advised decision up front ultimately led him to a much better choice. And I think history will show that going from Harriet Myers to Sam Alito was one of the great upgrades on the Supreme Court of all Oh, time. it was. Oh, it was. But here's my here's my bigger point. Uh, we got slaughtered in 2006. When did that begin? It began with Terry Schiavo and that silly episode. Then Harriet Myers, where he retreated, and then Katrina, where he dropped the ball. And they, I might have the order wrong, but those were the three bad episodes of the horrible year of 19 of 2005 for George W. Bush. When you blink, you know, you were governor. If you had blinked on Bridgegate, they would have swarmed over you and we'd still be we'd be looking at your bones on the beach if you'd blinked. There's no doubt. There is no doubt. But you also it's not that you never, ever can blink if you, in fact, made a mistake. Sometimes when the leader, what you have to do is say, I made the mistake. I'm going to own it and I'm going to move on. That's taking ownership, and that's leadership also, Hugh. We can't have leaders who never are willing to admit when they made a mistake. George W. Bush, as much as I love him, made a mistake in in nominating Harriet Myers, and he fixed that mistake by putting Sam Alito in, and we're a much better country because we have Sam Alito than not. And I think, I by, by the way, also, what you didn't include in there um, in the list of horribles for 0506 was what was going on in Iraq. Yes. Um, and, and, and that I think Katrina and Iraq played much bigger roles in the demise of of our majorities in 06 than uh, Harriet Myers did. Oh, well, we could argue this for a long time when he blinked on Harriet. He, he empowered uh, every far right congressman and senator to undermine his agenda. And that's it's a long conversation. We'll have another time because yeah. I want to go back to this. the first impeachment against Donald Trump. Was it a valid set of impeachment articles? No. I agree. Uh, the second set of articles, were they valid? I mean, look, the second set, I think, are, are, are uh, by the second set, we're talking about January 6th. No, 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 no. We're, we're oh, no. oh, yeah, we are. Ukraine? No. Uh, wait, the first one is Ukraine. The second one is right. January 6th. Uh, so Ukraine, I'd say no. Um, no, that they were not. Um, on January 6th, I think a much closer call. I think the problem with January 6th was that he was leaving office. Anyway. Yes. That- and and so why are we going through this charade of having this vote? It was purely for political theater. I yeah. think the conduct by the president, as I talk about in the book, was wrong. But I don't think impeachment was the right way to go about 
um, bringing that to light. It was unconstitutional. The last time I appeared on NBC, I was arguing with Chuck. Uh, Chuck said it's constitutional. They voted for it. It's not constitutional. Just because they vote for it doesn't make it constitutional because otherwise we'd never have any unconstitutional laws passed in this country. Well, that's right. No. And Congress voting yes is not proof of constitutionality. Yes. It's proof of them exercising their constitutional authority. But ultimately, I think that that impeachment proceeding was defective because of when they did it and how they did it. All right. I want to move to my two grand theories of Trump, uh, my unified field theories of Trump. They're one or the other. The first, which you talk about, but not directly, is that he needed the rallies for a feedback loop. The president depended upon applause line. He actually did all of his policy choices based upon the rally feedback loop. What do you make of that theory? And when they shut down the rallies because of COVID, rightly, he lost his feedback loop and he drifted. Yeah, well, and I think he lost his enthusiasm also um, and his adrenaline. He the, the job became more of a, a drudgery for him um, because he was not getting the positive reinforcement and the feedback loop, as you call it, that he got from the rallies. And so I think that became a very big problem for him, um, not only from a policy perspective, but also from a personal perspective. Now, Governor, I'm ignorant of many things, and I admit when I'm ignorant of something, I just say I'm ignorant. That doesn't mean you're stupid. It means you can learn. Uh, But I'm as ignorant as a child on many, many things. Uh, For example, the New York Mets farm system, which I'm sure you know pretty well. Uh, But I'm ignorant. You can learn that. Was Donald Trump ignorant like a child about most of the presidency? You know, I just, well, look, I think that it was that he didn't have an intellectual curiosity about it that prevented him from learning. He just didn't have intellectual curiosity, as you mentioned before, about reading books and history and all the rest. Um, I never saw that intellectual curiosity, except in very, very limited circumstances. And so I think that that, you know, I don't know whether I call it ignorant like a child, but I'd say it was a lack of intellectual curiosity. He substituted energy in the executive for it. He may have been the most energetic executive we've had since Hamilton wrote about that in Federalist 78. But my second grand theory, and you will know this as a governor, all developers alike. There's no project too big that you can't add more density. There's no hurdle that can't be overcome. There's no wetland that can be filled. There's no endangered species that can't be killed. They just believe there's no financing that if it's collapsed can't be restored. There's no worst enemy that can't be your buddy tomorrow. He's a developer. That's all you need to know about Donald Trump. What do you think? I agree. I agree with that one wholeheartedly. And I saw it manifest itself as governor of New Jersey when he was a developer inside my state. Um, and I saw it you know, manifest itself many, many times in the presidency to make him at times believe things that just shouldn't have been believed. Yeah, I, I, I represented developers through my 30 years of practice. They are all alike. If you have your name on your building, you are Donald Trump. And I, I say that with the good and the bad that comes with it. Let me go to 21st century extremism. Very important part of Republican rescue. Uh, you write that it was fueled by cable television, talk radio or propaganda blog sites and a new but growing force called social media. Lindsey Graham said the same thing in a hearing, and I called. I was so mad at Lindsey for saying talk radio fuels extremism. Is this fueling extremism, Governor? Your show isn't, but there are shows that do. But Rush, did Rush fuel extremism? Uh, no, I don't think Rush did, because I think Rush had an intellectual, um, an intellectual backbone to what he was saying. 
Um, I, so, no, I don't believe Rush did. Did Sean? Does Sean? No, I don't think Sean does either. Does Prager? No, I think you're picking all the good ones. I, well, I am picking all the good ones because all the good well, ones but, were the ones that were around for this time. But you're not mentioning any of the bad ones. I'm not going to mention Alex Jones. He's not a talk show host. He's a joke. He's a, he's the he's you know he's like the Riddler in a Batman movie. <laughs> but but you know he among others that you're not mentioning. Um, I think and on the left also um, have contributed to it. Oh yeah, but what I argued with Lindsay is that when you throw off talk radio, that just fuels the left wing saying that people like me and Rush and Sean are crazy people and that we should not be listened to. The nuttery is 100%, in my view, driven by the Internet. 100% by the ability of nuts to find each other on the Internet. And that's what's happening. Well, look, I, I, and as I say in there, the, the social media and the other things that exploit the Internet um, are a huge driver of it, a huge driver of it. And, and I talk about that throughout the book, as you know, um, especially in the section on all the conspiracy theories. I love that section, by the way, because... I go to dinner inside the Beltway with lefties all the time. My best friends are, are longtime Democratic sure. operatives. And, I, and they bring up January 6th. And I always say January 6th was 800 crazy people of whom 10% were bent on violence. They might have killed the vice president. They might have killed Nancy Pelosi. It was serious. But it's not representative of the Republican Party. And they can't get off of it, Governor. No. They, can't, they no. can't let it go. They don't want to let it go because it's in their political interest to keep pushing it. I mean, that's, that's what we need to understand about the Democrats. They are willing to do or say anything that they believe are in their political interest, regardless of the facts. And, 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 you know, that's one of Joe Biden's biggest problems right now is that he campaigns one way and he's governing in a completely different way. And that's why his approval ratings are where they are. That's why they're having the trouble they're having, because there are a lot of suburban voters out there who voted for Joe Biden and now feel completely shafted because he's not governing in the way he's promised them. That he would. No, I agree. But this is, there's a difference here I'm trying to get to. There are some of the smartest people I know, authors of great best-selling fiction works, serious reporters, great commentators, longtime public servants who've served under both Republicans and Democratic administration in advising consent position. They are genuinely worried that the Republican Party has been taken over by crazy people. What do you say to them? I say to them that that they are not looking at the facts. Let's look at, Hugh, a, a Des Moines Register poll that just came out today. When the question was asked of Iowa Republicans, some of the most conservative Republicans in America, were asked, is your loyalty to the GOP, uh, to Donald Trump, or to both? 62% say their loyalty is to the party. And only 26% say their loyalty is to Donald Trump. Um, this is a myth that's perpetuated by the mainstream media um, that somehow pre Donald Trump has taken over um, this entire party and that everyone just has to march in lockstep like the old, uh, you know, Apple 1984 commercial. Um, it's just not the case. It's not my experience in traveling the country. And I think Democrats want to do that because it's in their political interest to perpetuate that myth. I agree. And by the way, it's not going to he's not going to deter one serious candidate from running because I actually know how the party works and the party is going to work on who can win. That's why Donald Trump won. He was perceived as combative and willing to get into the trenches. So were you. But you couldn't displace Trump from that lane. The most combative yep. guy. Uh, that lane will be open because now it's the most combative guy who doesn't lose election lane. Right. 
That's correct. Yeah, so. That is absolutely correct. All right. Uh, let's look to the future. First of all, Glenn Youngkin just won. What's your advice to Glenn Youngkin? Govern as you uh, as you campaign and do so quickly, especially because in Virginia, as you know, it's one four year term. You have no time to waste as the governor of Virginia. So get in there, make the education reforms that you promised and more. Reform the education, bring choice to the educational system. Parental choice should be a huge part of the Virginia education system like it should be all over the country. Make sure you eliminate the grocery tax and do that inside the first 100 days. Make sure that you wind up using your your powers as governor to place conservatives on the court. Make sure that you do things that help to make Virginia more economically competitive and spur growth there. You do those things, you're going to go down as a very, very popular governor. And your political future, if you want one beyond that, um, will have a lot of possibilities. You know, if he does that in the first 18 months, he can run for president in 2024. Agree or disagree? Look, I think in today's world, that's absolutely possible. Now, I think his most important decision is his secretary of education, his superintendent of education because of CRT, which you talk about in the book and we're about to talk about shortly. Now, if you were going to go, having campaigned as Youngkin did, and I'll bet you probably campaigned for him. I think he's great. I, I think he's terrific. Yeah. So he has to pick a secretary of education and a superintendent. I hope he goes young and charismatic and brilliant and not any education credentials at all. Just go get the smartest, most charismatic person you can to lead renewal. What do you think should be his two appointments there? It, it, it is absolutely true. And look, I tried to do it um, when I was when I became governor of New Jersey. I came very close to getting Michelle Reed to leave uh, California and come to New Jersey. She, we had had a handshake on it, but she, you know, love conquers all. Uh, she was in love with her then boyfriend, now husband, Kevin Johnson. And Sacramento got her. Yeah. Right. And Sacramento got her. And that's what happened. I said, so that's the blueprint I would go for someone who will be a real charismatic disruptor. That's it. That's it. You need a charismatic disruptor. Uh, that's very well put. All right. Let me go to your policy. The very first policy position you take that is directed to other than Republicans exclusively, because you, you tell us rightly, you know, I learned more about uh, Welch in your book than I ever knew. I, I had no idea how he re- I knew that Buckley repudiated him and Goldwater sort of did. And then Nixon killed him dead. But I didn't know anything about the John Birch Society. I mean, who knows that stuff? Where did you learn that stuff? I, you know, intellectual curiosity, Hugh. And I read a lot about it. I read it in the context of Reagan. Um, and, and, and Reagan, uh, you know, is and is, I think, well, along with Buckley, um, uh, one of the heroes of pushing our party to a conservative philosophy that, it, that we kept for 50 years. Uh, and, and Reagan and Buckley are the two heroes of that. And Goldwater, quite frankly, um, is a disappointment in all that. Yeah, you're forgetting Nixon, because without Nixon, there is no Reagan. But I'll come back to that some other time. Uh, Your first policy prescription is uh, by deflection, uh, under winning again. The first issue you raise is Biden's open border policy. I want to begin by making sure we don't confuse left wingers and Steelers fans. You do not believe, do you, in replacement theory? No. Okay, good. Neither do I. I think it's a nightmare for the party to even get close to that racist and an extraordinary construct. But you do believe in the wall, don't you? Look, I believe in the border being secured. And if it's done by a wall or it's done by other technology, we have to secure the border. But the actual I physical. 
I want to nope. do the I, Q, I want to do it in the most efficient, effective way we can do it. If, if and, and I want experts to help tell me that if the wall is the most effective way, great. If the if if it's other types of much more modern technology that helps us to secure it better, I'd be for that. But we have to have a secure border um, with Mexico. If we don't, um, we don't have a country. All right. You didn't ask for my advice, but I'll give it to every candidate. The American people want a wall because it's a visible expression of an inward commitment to secure our border, whether or not it's the most efficient. It is actually there and you can't turn it off when the administration changes. And therefore, unless and until we get a thousand, it's like it's uh, 2000 miles across and we don't need all 2000 miles, but we need at least a thousand miles of it. Um would you support amnesty for the people in the country in exchange for completing the wall and everything else we need to reform immigration? You know, look, I think there has to be a comprehensive deal like that, Hugh. I don't. Uh, but what I'll tell you is this. Um, we've had, as people have pointed out in the past, um, promises in that regard in exchange for, uh, for things. So I want to measure twice and cut once on that one and make sure that everybody is truly going to be committed to getting done what we need to get done and not have it be reversed by people later. Um, you know, because otherwise, Hugh, um, we're going we're gonna to set ourselves back another 50 years um, by buying a pig and a poke. Well, that's the 1986 immigration reform that, that the aforementioned Ronald Reagan signed, and it was a promise against uh, payment of amnesty that did not get delivered. That's yeah. why I think there's a comprehensive bill to be had, and I, I don't think Republicans should be afraid of the word amnesty if it's a good enough bill. Education. If it's bill, that's my point. Measure twice, cut once. All right. There is a uh, an education section that I just can't beat, the teachers' unions. Uh, would you support federal legislation prohibiting um, teachers' unions as being existing? In, in, I just don't think they serve the public yes, interest because, or our children. Yes, because it's belt and suspenders. They're also covered by civil service. I don't think there should be any public sector unions. I agree Either that or you get rid of civil service. Both now, one or we, the other. You can't have both. I agree. And, and if we got rid of public employee unions, we would be fine as a country, but we can't keep them there. I want to play for you now, CRT. Here is Brianna Keller, CNN anchor. Rick Scott goes on after Glenn Youngkin. He explains CRT is the issue in Virginia. It's one of many issues in Virginia. Here's Brianna Keller, uh, Keeler, cut number 11. I mean, and so well, it's the not parents in the curriculum. showed up because they don't like the I mean, to. just just to be clear, it's not it's not in the curriculum um, in Virginia. In February uh, 2019, a superintendent memo for the Virginia the Department of Education promoted critical race theory not, and the idea of white fragility. It's not it's not I part of the curriculum. Yesterday. Parents are smart. I, I just I they just want to be clear. Okay, the, Senator, the I just Virginia have to be clear. Department it's Education not promoted critical race theory. And and Terry McAuliffe said they didn't. I hope okay, Democrats listen, keep doing that all Senator, across the country. Fine. Uh, it's not part of the curriculum. I would like to move on. with. Now, I mashed up all the time. She said it's not part of the curriculum. She said <laughs> it's not part of the curriculum six times over a six minute interview. That's the media. Chris Christie, what do you say to people who say it's not in the curriculum? Well, it's absolutely ridiculous that it's not in the curriculum. Of course it is. And every day what they're doing is teaching children that the first thing you need to judge the child sitting next to you by is race, that it's a determinative, determinative um, factor um, in every person sitting in that room. And I'm sorry, it's just not. And that's contrary to what Dr. King uh, stood for. Um, and it's contrary to what this country is all about. 
I agree. But but, you know, the talking point now, did you go to Catholic schools, Governor? I forget. I did not. I went to public school. Okay, I went to Catholic school and I tell everyone they didn't have Catholic math. They didn't have Catholic science, but you were always in a Catholic school and it was drenched in Catholicism. That's CRT. You're not going to find CRT algebra. You're not going to find CRT history. It's just going to be in the water. And and Chris Rufo is. yeah. Oh, and by the way, it's not only that it leads to all this other stuff. Like I I, I told I think I tell the story in the book that, you know, my my niece um, wound up, um, you know, a fifth grader. In New Jersey, given a given an assignment, the whole class, the American dream, myth or reality. Okay, fair fair thing to write about. But then the teacher says, "Well, you can only write your essay based upon the written materials that we give you." And they only gave out written materials on myth. So my niece wrote a wrote a essay anyway, supporting the fact that the American dream is a reality, and she got a bad grade on it. And when my brother and my sister in law went in to, to argue about this. With the principal and the teacher, the teacher said the assignment was clear. Write it on the basis of the written materials we gave you. I mean, this is the stuff that's going on in our schools right now. They're not saying anti-patriotism is part of the curriculum, but don't tell me that that's not an anti-patriotic and false lesson that's being taught to our children. Well, I agree. With that. I don't think that story's in the book, or I missed it, because I would remember that. And I want to preface this. Anecdotal evidence is evidence of anecdotes. But an anecdote like that is powerful because it's representative of the experience of many parents. Is that what happened in Virginia? All dots were connected. They came under the uh, the heading CRT, but it was actually quarantine, masking, anti-patriotism, race conscious. It was everything that's wrong with the public schools is now under the heading of CRT. Is that the fair summary? I think that's a fair summary. And I think the other thing that happened was that Terry McAuliffe told the truth by mistake. And, you know, you've seen politicians do this before. He went on TV in a debate and said what he really thinks about parents' role in education of their children um, and and then tried to back away from it. But everybody heard it loud and clear. And, you know, Hugh, the one thing you can never take away from a, a political race are the candidates. And Terry McAuliffe handed this issue, gift wrapped it for Glenn Youngkin, and Glenn Youngkin gleefully spent the last six weeks of the campaign slowly opening it, and that's what led to victory on Election Day. Yeah, I've played it more on this show than any other clip. It earned it. George Floyd, you write about. Now, George Floyd was murdered. I said that almost a moment that he was murdered. You write, racial activists and hyper-progressive Democrats using this case to seek cynical political advantage and push radical social changes they promoted for decades. Page 246. I agree with that. I haven't seen it come up in any of your interviews yet. Do people realize what you've written in this book about George Floyd and the aftermath? Has that registered? Because most people don't read the books. Nope, they don't. And as hasn't so far. You're the first person to ask. And I hope someone else does. Um, but I'm glad that I'm getting on the record on your show about it. Uh, well, in the Kenosha riots, which are now called disturbances or protests, they were riots and people. <laughs> the, the, this 17 year old, maybe he's 18 year old now is on trial. I think it's Rittenhouse. I don't follow any trial because I'm not in the courtroom, so I have no opinion. Do you have an opinion on whether or not he's going to be acquitted or convicted? I don't for the very same reason you just said. If anybody who's actually been in a courtroom and tried cases like I have or been responsible for them, like I was when your U.S. attorney, um, unless you're watching it every day, you can't have a valid opinion about what's going to happen. 
Okay, so we agree on that. But I do have a valid opinion that Kenosha were not protests. I think Kenosha were riots where people's property was being destroyed. Absolutely. And there were riots in Portland and there were riots in Seattle and there were riots in St. Louis. And we and and, and, you know, we can go through it. Uh, There were riots in New York City. And I think anybody who doesn't acknowledge that is not acknowledging the truth of what a lot of political players in this country stoked during the summer, uh, during that summer of 2020. So so I'm getting now to the last two pages. So I I just want to let you know the end is in sight. When the media (laughs) says we have conspiracy theorists on the right, they are absolutely true. You go through Pizzagate, QAnon, you destroy all that. But there are conspiracy theorists on the left as well. And there are crazies on the left. You bet. You bet there are. Are they as dangerous as the crazies on the right? That's just what I'm looking for from the media, is that we have a 1% problem on both ends of the spectrum. Every bit is dangerous. And if you listen to just some of the stuff that Joy Reid spouts every night on MSNBC, I'd put her in that category. Now, uh, Joy is a colleague. I do not criticize colleagues, uh, but you're entitled to your own opinion. Uh, let, me, let me go on to Casey and Roe. The Dobbs case will be heard on December 1st. Should this court overturn Roe and Casey? Roe is bad law, um, Hugh. It's just bad law, and it gets worse every year. And the reason it gets worse is kind of an interesting um, analogy to, to COVID. You know, Democrats during COVID, their mantra was follow the science. Democrats on climate change are follow the science. But why are we not follow the science on abortion? Because if you follow the science on abortion, we know now that Roe is a 50-year outdated concept. The idea that children don't feel pain in the first trimester. The idea that children are not viable. The idea that that's not a life. We now can prove that through the enhanced sonograms that we do and through other testing that can be done. And so Roe is just bad law. And bad law shouldn't be allowed to stand. Well, that's, that, I believe that the Chief Justice will write the majority based on his concurrence in Citizens United and will say, this is a terrible precedent. It's gone. It's back to the states to decide. It's not going to make il- abortion illegal. It's not going to make abortion legal. It's just going to get the Supreme Court out of it. Do you, do you yep. think that's what's going to happen? I hope that that's what's going to happen. I don't have confidence in it because this is such an emotionally charged and politically charged issue. And I don't think the court is entirely um, insulated from that. But I'm hoping that what they'll say is to look back on Harry Blackman's opinion 50 years ago and say, you know what? We just can no longer twist ourselves in a pretzel to defend it, especially given where we are in the science right now um, on, on, the, on the process of having a baby. And so and the, uh, to, to me, it's just, it's just not defensible. What about the joint opinion by O'Connor, Souter and Kennedy that come to Casey in 1992? Does that have to go, too? Yes. OK. Uh, Section 230, Uh, you write about big tech in a very comprehensive way in a very short number of pages. Um, Would you would you have any other uh, fix for big tech short of repeal of 230, like ending anonymity in posters or allowing us in the boardroom so we know what the CCP technology is that we're up against? Because Google will deal with CCP, but they won't deal with our government. And no, look, I, I think that all those things are good. But I think in the end. Um, money talks and everything else walks and section 230 has got to go. And that's the biggest thing that will get their attention. Okay. I agree with that, but there are other things that they could do. They're they're just bad at this governor. 
Has any of them ever asked you? Mark Zuckerberg's had me to dinner. I've sat down with Mark twice. I've talked to Peter. Does anyone ever call you up and just talk to you about this stuff as the representative of kind of the smart Republicans? Uh, No, they have not. I'm astonished by this. I really am. Uh, Let's go to China. You rightly call out the CCP as our mortal threat. Then you write, quote, First, we have to vastly increase the size and capability of our surface Navy so we can have a much larger presence to protect our interests in the South China Sea. End of quote. You know, I was in the Ohio class uh, category back in 2016. I'll be talking about the Columbia class now, but it's not surface ships, Governor. It's, It's submarines and cyber and all sorts of other stuff. You're not just exclusively counting on frigates, are you? No. No, I'm not exclusively counting on that. I, I, you know, the Navy, and that's probably inartfully put by me, but I meant the Navy as a whole and our technology, our naval technology, and in every respect, has to get best in class. If it doesn't, um, we are getting, we are ceding enormous advantage to the Chinese. Let's be very clear on this one. If Taiwan is threatened with invasion, if China begins the moves that will have to precede an actual physical takeover, what does the United States do? We have to make it very clear to them that we are going to defend Taiwan. You want to expand on that? I mean, look, I just think that they need to understand that the risk of of what's going to happen to them if they proceed is much, much greater than any advantage they can perceive by that they will uh, achieve rather um, by getting to Taiwan. If you're the president, clear. If you're the president, do you order the torpedoes to sink the Chinese ships? Look, if it gets to the point where the Chinese ships are going to Taiwan, you're going to you're probably going to have to make that call. It's going to be a very close one, but you're going to have to make that call. But more importantly, Hugh, you're, you want to take steps before that to prevent the Chinese from ever thinking that they can get away with sending ships there. And that's the much more important approach to take. You don't want to get yourself in a position where you have to make that call. And I still think there are time and steps we could take to prevent it. But we have to be very, very clear with the Chinese. And we haven't been. The Trump administration wasn't. The Biden administration isn't. And we've got to be crystal clear about it. If that fails, uh, uh, Governor Christie, and those ships sail and the call has to be made, do you say fire the torpedoes? I think you have to. All right. I agree. I just think the more we say that, the less likely it is that they'll sail. But if we don't say it. Yeah. I think you have to. And I and, and, and I and and I say it, Hugh, with reluctance because I know what it's gonna mean. But I also know that if, if we let them do to Taiwan what they've done to Hong Kong, um their expansionism expansionist appetite will never end. All right. Uh the nuclear triad, famously unrecognized by the president, he's forgiven me for that question now. Which part of the triad gets the most money first under a Christie administration? Which part of the triad gets the most money first? Probably the submarines. Yep. Right answer. Uh, now, to the part of the book, always read the credits. I always read the credits. There's always a story in the credit. You thank Phil Cox. Phil's with Ron DeSantis now. Who's your new Phil Cox? <laughs> well, I don't know if I need a new Phil Cox, but Phil is a great member of my team. I believe he's still a good member of my team. He can help Ron DeSantis get reelected governor, and who knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, but uh, Phil and I are still close friends and still talk regularly about politics and family. So you know, he's, he's the smartest. Phil Cox yet. He's the smart. He and he, I already mentioned uh, 
uh, Brett and and Cox and Brett are they they both have too many clients. They're going to have to make a choice here by 2024. But you don't think he's made that choice yet, right? I don't believe so. All right, Governor Larry Hogan is your political brother. Governor Larry Hogan is pro-choice, and I love Governor Larry Hogan. He just invited me to the Ravens game, which I won't go to because it's evil place, and they no one should go to a Baltimore Ravens game. But <laughs> what? When you say that, do you mean to say that you agree politically on a lot of stuff, or just that he's a red governor in a blue state? No, I no. First of all, it's a personal relationship, ah. and that's why I use the word brother. Um, Larry and I have gone through a lot together. Um, I helped Larry get elected. He's talked about that because I believed in him when no one else wanted to believe in him. Borrowed money from a credit line as RGA chairman, $2 million to put into Washington TV in the last 10 days of his race because I believed he was going to win when no one else in the country did. Um, and, and then Larry stood by me when I ran for president. Um, I stood with Larry when he was going through cancer. Um, and, and we are dear, dear friends. And that's what I mean by political brother. He is a he is a dear friend. I don't always agree with Larry and everything. He certainly vehemently disagreed with my support of Donald Trump um, yeah. and said so publicly. So we have our disagreements on a political, but on the personal level, it's, he's one of the kindest, most decent and loyal people uh, I've met in my life. Forget about in politics anywhere. And that's why he's in the, the credits of the book. Well, so is Joe Manchin, uh, your mentor governor that you and Mary Pat Went out with Joe and Gail. Talk about curveballs. Why don't you call him up and tell him to become a Republican? <laughs> I have. <laughs> I have. And Joe's a great friend. Um, and he was a great mentor governor to me in my first year as governor. Um, someone who gave me great practical advice. He never tried to give me philosophical advice. Um, that wasn't the role he was playing. He was trying to give me and did give me advice on how to be a governor, how to exercise authority. Um, how to exercise leverage, how to work with the legislature. And he gave me all kinds of great advice in that regard. I wish Joe would become a Republican tomorrow. But since he's not going to be, I'm glad he's there inside the Democratic caucus to try to at least put some guardrails around what the heck's happening down there. All right. Two last questions, but I want to review the commitments. Number one, if there's a President Christie, I'm the special envoy to Northern Ireland. That's a given. Done. Done. Number two, uh, you're going to take me to the next meeting with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, right? Uh, look, if he allows it, I'm more than happy to. I can't, I can't bring you into a private club without his permission. But I'd All love right. to have you here. Okay, the last two questions. Jared Kushner got a lot of extraordinary stuff done. The Abraham Accords, the First Step Act, he really did a lot. You two still seem to not like each other very much. Is there a point at which you just say, we better move on from this, and you did great work, and we're just going to move on? Well, look, I mean, you know, you're, you're writing book about history. You have to tell the truth. Um, and I've always told the truth. Like, I, I never met Jared Kushner until I walked into Donald Trump's office in April of, of 2016 when he wanted to make me uh, transition chairman. And Jared vehemently objected to it because I prosecuted his father. Um, there's nothing personal on my end about Jared Kushner. But the truth is the truth. Um, you know, Hugh, and, and if I'm writing about it, I have to tell the truth. Um, and I don't think, you know, Jared has been very honest about his feelings about me, which I think are intensely personal and have nothing to do with capability or political philosophy. All right. Now, there were two Trump White Houses. 
There was the Trump White House that had Robert O'Brien as a good friend and Michael Pompeo in there every day as a good friend. There is Larry Kudlow White House. And then there's the Stephen Miller and Peter Navarro White House. You don't say anything negative about Stephen Miller. You don't mention Peter Navarro, as far as I can tell. If you had taken the chief of staff role, would Miller and Navarro have survived a day? Well, I'll say this. Um, I don't know Navarro well enough to be able to give you an opinion on that. He's nuts. <laughs> well, I would have wanted to get to know him and come to my own conclusion. But this was one of the problems, um, Hugh, when you said I should have taken the job. I made it clear to the president that I had to have the ability to be able to hire and fire staff that worked and reported to the chief of staff. And he I, thought he okay. I thought he said yeah, that was okay. I thought he said that was okay, except for Jared and, and Ivanka. Right. He said it was Okay. But I didn't believe that when I got down to the point, whether it was Stephen or whether it was Peter, wherever it was. And by the way, on Stephen Miller, on a personal basis, I got along with him fine. From a policy perspective, we didn't agree much. But on a personal level, he and I always got along just fine oh, and during the campaign in 16. Let me be clear. Peter Navarro and I have gone to the Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young concert together. Peter is a a friend of 30 years. He's out of his mind, but charismatically so. And he's a left winger. (laughs) Look, I will will tell you that for me, um, if I would have had the authority to recraft the staff, I would have significantly recrafted the staff. All right. Uh, This this is a terrific book. I have kept you an hour per my agreement. Chris Christie, Republican Rescue is really Very, very good. Congratulations. Keep coming back. I hope I see you on a debate stage soon. Hugh, whenever you invite me, I will come. And thank you for having me. And thanks for giving me so much time um, to talk about the book. And as I knew you would, you read it thoroughly and you got a lot of the stuff that a lot of other people just won't get. It doesn't. It just requires reading. Governor, thank you. Have a good one. America, we'll be back tomorrow. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.